Abandoned to Mother, the incredible, emotional, and life-changing transformation we take when we go on our journey into motherhood. From all things conception to postpartum and parenthood, I will be talking with parents and hearing their stories of navigating these times while sharing helpful information along the way. Together, we'll be covering all stories, no matter how you have chosen to conceive, birth, or parent. Let's get into it. Hello and welcome to the Maiden to Mother journey. I'm Kendall, your podcast host, and today we're talking with Tony. Tony, how are you going? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on. I know you're not feeling very well today. (laughs) Yeah, but thanks for having me. No, I'm really excited to hear your story. I haven't heard it yet. Can you start off by introducing yourself and telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and what, what you do? So I'm Tony. I am a, just for clarity, I'm a stepmother and a bio mum. So I have given birth to two children myself um, and I run a blended family blog on Instagram as well as hosting my own stepmotherhood podcast. Yeah. And it's going really good. Your community's growing rapidly. It is. And it's exciting. And there's Lots of women out there who are struggling and they don't even know that there's so many more of us going through the same thing. Well, it's obviously going well and so many people relate to what you're saying because I can see that, um, you know, on your content and on your followers and everything like that, it's it's growing. So well done. Good on you for creating a platform to speak about those things. Thanks. And you too. I've been waiting to come on here because, and share my story. Yeah, yeah. Super excited to hear it. Uh, can you tell us about your family? Um, so I have a yours, mine, and ours blended family. So there's my husband, Trent. Um, he's got two boys from a previous relationship. Um, not gonna say their names, but they are 13 and 10. And then I have my biological son from a previous relationship. We can call him Big K for today. And then we have our daughter who is three and a half and she's my VBAC baby and her name is Kendall. Yeah, she's got the best name in the world. (laughs) (laughs) She does. Same (laughs) spelling and everything. I know, I know. How good. So talking about both your births today, so do you want to start off by um, talking about Big K? What was your family planning like with him? There was no family planning at all. Um, He was a surprise baby. I found out I was pregnant at around 15 weeks via ultrasound because I was testing negative. Wow, that's so interesting. I've never heard that before. Tell us the backstory to that. So I, Big K was actually my fifth pregnancy. I have a long running history of miscarriages and so do the women in my family and both well, sorry, not just both. Um, my grandmother, one of my cousins and I have all had a, hi- a long history of testing negative when we're actually pregnant. Wow. Doctors can't explain it, but our HCG is always really low. And quite often we find out that we're pregnant after we've already miscarried. Wow. I, that's so, I've never heard anything like that and for it to be hereditary and no one's been able to give you answers for that. No answers other than all of us have endometriosis, adenomosis and PCOS. 
Oh my God. So with your previous miscarriages before Big K, were they, were they planned or? No. So I was on birth control. Yeah. And I have obviously have a history of birth control not working. So when I fell pregnant with Big K, I actually had the implant on in my arm and was taking the pill. Oh my goodness. He really, really wanted to come into the world, didn't he? He really did. And I kept telling my um, doctor, I was, I kept going back and I'm like, I'm pregnant. I know I am. You need to give me an ultrasound. And he didn't question me because I'd previously gone to him a few years earlier and I told him that I was pregnant, but I kept testing negative. I wasn't showing. And then um, I had some medical stuff happen and it resulted in me needing a medical termination because the medic- medicine that I had been given caused harm to a baby that I didn't know I was carrying. I was 19 and a half weeks along. Oh, my goodness. So when you went to um, go get the scan at 15 weeks pregnant, you obviously weren't so surprised then that you were actually pregnant. No, um, I was surprised I was so far along, but I wasn't surprised I was pregnant. I just, I just had that gut feeling. Mm. I, I guess you call it mother's intuition, especially after everything that I'd already been through. And so, what was that like to to find out that you were pregnant? Um, it was absolutely terrifying. Um, I, a couple of years earlier, I had after my last pregnancy loss, I had actually separated with the boyfriend that I had that pregnancy loss with. And I had moved back in with my parents and um, my son's father lived with his parents and he wasn't working. So it was, you know, a great time to have a child. But at the same time, I I didn't want to give up what could be my only chance, mm. which, which is what I was thinking at the time. Um, so it was absolutely terrifying for me. I was um, I was 23 when I found out I was pregnant and I was 24 when he was born. Oh, and how was your pregnancy? My pregnancy was pretty smooth um, up until I think I was about 33 weeks and I was at work and I bent down to pick something off the ground and I tore my abdominal muscles. Oh, Um, And I felt it like I dropped to the ground. I was screaming in agony. And um, so then I got put on light duties at work and then eventually bed rest. Um, But for the most part, my pregnancy went swimmingly. Oh, that's good. And because we were actually, was that when we were working together? Yes, that's when we were working together. Wow, that was about what, 10... Nine years ago. Nine years ago? Oh, my God. That's gone so quick. Yeah, he turns nine in December. Holy, that's crazy. So you were living, where were you living then at the time? You were living sort of like uh, South Brisbane, weren't you? Yeah. 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 And then what, like, model of care or, like, sort of birth preparation did you do? I was really naive and I didn't think I needed to do any preparation because no one else I knew had done any preparation. You know, they had just gone in, then had their babies. Um, I did have a friend who was a midwife. So I was just being seen between my GP and the obstetricians at Logan Hospital. Um, I didn't even get offered 
um, to work with the midwives. And I had a friend who was working as a, a midwife at a Gold Coast hospital. And she was like, what's your birth plan? I'm like, I don't know. I don't have one. So <laughs> we um, caught up for coffee and lunch one day and she helped me write a birth plan. And in that, I did not even think of cesarean. Mm. Yeah. To me, that wasn't an option. <laughs> so, well, we'll go through your birth then. Tell us the story of your birth. What was the first signs of labor? So my son's due date was the 16th of December and my last um, hospital appointment was on the 15th of December. And I had asked them, please schedule me for an induction. Like he feels really big and I need him out. And they wouldn't. They said, no, don't be stupid. He's really small. Um, They tried to say because I was smoking at the beginning of my pregnancy because I didn't know I was pregnant that my child would be small and they refused to do a growth scan. Um, They scheduled me for an induction on the 28th of December. And that was 12 days over. Um, I I had like a really long prodromal, how do you pronounce prodromal. it? Prodromal. Prodromal. Yeah. So I had a really long prodromal labor starting, kicking off on the 20th of December. I spent all of Christmas Day having contractions. I was grateful that my parents had a swimming pool. So I was able to sit in there for most of the day. Um, and then I knew that I, my induction was booked. So I knew that it couldn't go on forever, but I was right up until the 28th when the induction was booked. I woke up the morning at two, about 2am 2 to a really big contraction and a small gush of water. So I was like, okay, so it's happening today regardless. And I was up for about an hour just, you know, walking, having a few like little contractions that were like a few niggles. And I didn't call the hospital because I was like, whatever. Um, And then I was like, I'll, I'll go back to sleep. You know, I've got to go into the hospital at 7 a.m. anyway. So I'll go, I'll go back to bed. And then it was about 4 a.m. I woke up to another big contraction and this time it was a really big gush of water and it was green. So I have meconium waters. Mm. Uh, so I've gotten in the shower and the contractions were coming hard. I say hard and fast because I can compare it to my other labor as well. Uh, but they were coming every three minutes lasting at least about 40 seconds. Yeah. So as soon as your water's broke, it sort of like ramps straight up. Yeah. So I was in the shower for a bit and I was at my in-laws place and they'd woken up and I was like, can you take me to the hospital? Like my original plan was I was going to drive myself to the hospital, have my induction, have my baby and drive home. (sighs) That's what I thought was going to happen. So they got me to the hospital about 5.30 in the morning and at first, everything was great. They, um, the midwives and everything were great. They were letting me eat. I could drink. Um, but then my contractions were coming really fast and they wanted to check me. And also because I said that my waters had broken with meconium and it was my hind waters that broke. Mm-hmm. 
So when they did a cervical check, I was one centimeter, but for them looking, my membrane was fully intact. So they manually broke the rest of my waters and removed the membrane. And I stayed on one centimeter until about 9.30 in the morning. And I said to him that I felt something was wrong. Like he he was like pushing to get out basically. And I got up to go to the toilet and it was just like a bloodbath everywhere. And they did a cervical check and I was only three centimeters. Mm. Uh, so at that point, that's when they offered me some pain relief. And I, I was adamant I was doing this naturally, mind you. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Um, so then I progressed. I had the the gas, I had uh morphine. Then when they wouldn't give me more morphine, I opted for the water injections. Yep. Which for anyone who hasn't had them or wants to consider them for an option, they do work a treat, but they are painful. I've heard that they're extremely painful, but then they're amazing. Yeah, so it's, imagine being stung by two wasps simultaneously. Mm. That's exactly what it feels like. So in the moment, they're painful, but they are amazing. Um, and I, I skipped a little bit about, like, my pregnancy and everything. I guess the care that I had, no one ever checked baby's position other than to check that he was head down. Yeah. So I knew nothing about... OP, LOA, ROA, anything. I didn't know anything about baby's position. I just knew he had to be head down to come out. I was like, yeah, this will be fine. But he was OP. Yeah, which is sunny side up. Yeah, so so, um, spine on spine, head down down but spine on spine. Mm. So that explains why my labor was so bad. they, I also forgot to mention that when I was three centimeters and bleeding, that's when they gave me the drip, the Pitocin. Pitocin, yeah. They gave me the Pitocin to ramp up my contractions to help him come out because he was basically ramming his head on my cervix. Um, Sorry to stuff you up there. No. Um, So my contractions were coming really, really hard and fast, but... I wasn't progressing at all and I was just getting into so much pain and they were like, like, you need to rest. We're going to give you an epidural, which I was dead set against an epidural because I had heard nothing but horror stories. But I went along with it anyway because I just couldn't take any more pain and I want to say about... So th- I can't remember exactly the times, but 9.30, I was three centimetres. And I think about by 5 p.m., I was 10 centimetres. And I said, like, I can feel him coming. Like, I need to push. But no one had, like, moved me from my back the entire time from when the epidural was placed. So I was on my back pushing for an hour. They brought the mirror in so that I could see him. And so he was coming out sort of face first with like brow presentation. Mm. So after an hour of pushing, 
I had the head obstetrician come in and go, you know, we're going to take you for a C-section. We don't let mothers push for longer than an hour. So we're going to need to get this C-section underway. And I'm looking at her like, you're telling me a load of shit. Like I, I have friends that have pushed for longer than an hour. And I have a brother who's actually an ED doctor and he was working at Logan Hospital at the time and he'd been calling birthing suites to check up on me because he knew that I was being induced that day. Mm. And I knew something was wrong. I'm going to cry because this bit still triggers me. It's okay. Take your time. I I knew something was wrong the moment um, I had a midwife poke it, like I had the obstetrician in my head trying, like basically yelling at me, telling me you need to sign the paperwork for a C-section by giving you a C-section. And I'm arguing with her going, his head's right there. Like he's coming. <laughs> and I knew something was wrong the moment um, a midwife poked her head back and said, oh, Tony, your brother's here. Is it all right if he comes into the room? Mm. And the obstetrician screamed, no one's coming in the room. And my brother, I didn't even have a chance to say yes. He just ripped back the curtain and she went, oh, hello, doctor. And he looked at me and he said, you need to sign the paperwork or you're going to die. And so was he. Oh, sorry. Okay. Just let me. It's okay. Let me regather myself because. I was also mentally preparing myself to talk about this. <laughs> Honestly, it's okay. These conversations bring up lots and lots of feelings. Take your time. Oh, um, so yeah, when when he came into the, like he ripped back the curtain and came into the room and said what he said, I knew something was wrong, and I didn't ask any more questions. I just signed the paperwork and off I went. Um, but by the time they got me down to theater my epidural had worn off on half my body and they tried to replace it and it wasn't working so I ended up with a spinal um they they tried to use the vacuum to see if they could pull big k out um which wasn't working so then they tried forceps and by them using the forceps they actually wedged him further into my pelvis Wow. So what I didn't know then, but I now know in preparing for my VBAC was when they were getting him out, they had lost his heartbeat. And so it became a bit of a rush and they tore my uterus down to my uterine artery in an attempt to get him out quickly and they also had to have the midwife push Big K back up through my vagina because he was stuck. So somewhat like the doctor was pulling on his legs while the midwife was pushing on his head. Mm. Um, and I just remember I was laying there, my son's father was there and one of the nurses had turned to him and whispered but didn't whisper quite soft enough that I couldn't hear. And she said, look, he's out, but he's not breathing. We're working on him. And I don't actually know how long it was, but it felt like a lifetime until I heard him cry. But I was, I had enough time to scream at least three times. Oh my God, I killed him. I killed him. I killed him. (sighs) 
Um, but then when I heard him cry, I just, I burst into tears, of course. Um, but because I had the spinal tap, I couldn't hold him because I had no feeling in my arms. I could only move my head. Um, and so they brought him next to my head. And then the next minute I know they're rushing Big K and his father out and I was getting knocked under general anesthetic. Um, and I, I'm guessing it, to repair Obviously, the uterus. Yeah. Um, because they had gone all the way to the uterine artery, um, which no one told me. Mm. <laughs> um, but then, like, I oh, – so I woke up in recovery and, like, I, I kind of, like, woke up in this drug haze and they just put this random baby on me. <laughs> It was my son, but for me, it was a random baby. I'm like, who is this? Like, what are they doing? And like, they put him on my boob and I was just like this, I like, get it off me. Like, I just, this isn't my son. I just had no instant connection. Um, And then I remember they took him back to NICU and then I woke up as they were taking me up to the ward. And another thing that's triggering for me, um, not really triggering, but it's just upsetting, is I had made it clear that I didn't want anyone up at the hospital when he was first born, regardless of how I birthed him. But when I got up to the ward, my in-laws were there telling me how beautiful my son was. Mm. I hadn't even really met him. And they'd met him. So, yeah, that was really upsetting for me. Um, what else do you want to know? <laughs> well, there's a lot of questions there. Obviously, I mean, nine years on, you're still feeling really, really upset about, about your birth. Was there any support or anything provided from the hospital straight after what you'd just gone through? Not besides the usual checks. How are you feeling? And of course you go good, even when you're not in the healthiest of relationships, women don't find it easy to speak up and say that they're not in a healthy relationship. So, of course, I lied and I said that I had a great support network at home. Um, they also told me that I had to wait 12 months before falling pregnant again, but a VBAC would not be an issue for me. Yeah. So I knew that if I had another child, a VBAC was high on my agenda. Because mm. I did not want to go through that birth again. What you've just gone through. Yeah. yeah. So obviously it was all pretty traumatic for you. How were you when you'd finally been reunited with Big K? How were you feeling? What was the feelings? When, when he was finally brought back to me, um, I guess then I got that delayed rush of emotion and hormones that a mother normally gets when they meet their baby for the first time. Um, mm. For me, I just feel like it was delayed. So I was able to breastfeed. And like I said, I had a friend who was a midwife and she came to visit me after I had him and she was, um, she helped to check that I had a good latch and everything, which I did. And I was really bl blessed with the fact that I had an oversupply of milk. 
thankfully didn't have any of those issues that came, especially because he was a hungry boy. <laughs> yeah, so you were able to breastfeed, okay? Yeah, I was. However, I wasn't prepared for cluster feeding. Mm-hmm. I don't think any mothers, brand new mothers, prepared for. Hello, Kendall. Kendall's joined us. <laughs> <laughs> She's running away again. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. She's telling you that she has yogurt. Oh, okay. That's very nice, Kendall. <laughs> Kendall said very nice, Kendall. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. I, so I was struggling with the the cluster feeding. I thought that there was something wrong with me because I couldn't birth my child properly and now he's feeding from me every 30 minutes. You could birth your child properly. I would say that you were very much so failed by your care providers. Absolutely. Like these are my past feelings. Like, yes, I birthed my child. I didn't birth him to plan. I wasn't given the right information at the time. But at the time when all this was happening, I was feeling very much so that I failed to birth him the Mm. way that I should be able to basically which a lot of mums I think especially when they have emergency c-sections feel like they've failed their child and they've failed their like their bodies failed them as a woman because Mm -hmm. I guess a lot of us put a lot of pressure on ourselves that this is what our body is designed to do yeah I can certainly understand that and then and you mentioned before you probably weren't in the most supportive space how was your postpartum period then when with big k um it wasn't too bad. My mother-in-law had two planned C-sections, so she was very supportive in helping me get back up on my feet and stuff. So we were living with them after Big K was born. Um, so she was really supportive in that matter, but my relationship wasn't the best and I was made to feel a little bit shamed for breastfeeding um, and always had to go to a room, like to Big K's room or my room to feed him. And I felt a lot of pressure to bottle feed him because everyone else wanted to feed him. Mm. Um, But I was dead set against bottle feeding him at that point. (laughs) Yeah. And rightfully so, that's your decision as his mother. Yeah. And I did. I did end up introducing formula because I had to go back to work when he was four months old. As I previously said, his father wasn't working when I was pregnant with him. Um. So once the government 18-week paid parental leave was up, I had to go back to work. Uh, And I just wasn't confident in giving my breast milk to the daycare. Even Mm. though I had a large supply, I was just really worried that they wouldn't. Like, I know they have practices involved, but, like, as my first child, I was worried that they wouldn't handle my breast milk the right way. Yeah. So I introduced formula. So while he was at daycare, he had formula. But when he was at home, he had breast. Mm-hmm. But that was short-lived. And I think by the time he was seven months, he gave up the breast completely. And I started to dry up because I couldn't pump at work as often as I needed to. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be really hard going back to work and trying to like keep up with breastfeeding and and stuff like that. We definitely need to get better in that area in Australia for sure, being able to give that support to mothers returning to work. Absolutely. Like I was given one pumping break a day and I worked eight-hour days. Wow. So it wasn't 
the best of environments to be trying to maintain breastfeeding. Mm. And then, so how long, oh, how old was Big K when you and your, when he, you and his father decided to separate? Uh, he was a month off three. Yeah. And then along comes Trent, your now husband. Yes. So tell us about when he came in the picture and um, your family merging. Okay. So we actually knew each other for several years prior to us dating. Um, Our respective, like, our relationships, our other relationships kind of um, fell apart around the same time, if you will. And we we were working together, but we he knew that I had left Big K's father, but I didn't know that he had actually left his wife. And then we coincidentally ran into each other on a weekend where we had our boys at a park. And that's when he told me what had happened. And from there, we just kind of started hanging out and it sort of went from there. And then once the kids knew each other, they were just asking for sleepovers and they wanted to be around each other all the time. Like before we'd even told the boys that we were dating, they were calling each other brothers. Mm. So that was really good. Um, And then we had actually decided that we were never getting married. He didn't want to get married again. And we were never having children because I was still so traumatized from Big K's birth. I just didn't want to go through that again. Yeah. Um, So that was all um, like early to mid-2018 and then – Towards the end of 2018, even though I was on birth control, I fell pregnant and had another miscarriage. Mm. And that's when Trent said, well, what if we do just have one baby together? Like, why don't we just do it? And I looked at him and because he's he's 13 years older than me. So I was like, well, if we're doing it, I guess we need to like do it now. Yeah. Um, so that's when we sort of planned we were going to move in together because we weren't even living together at the time and um I guess just go guns blazing. So we bought a house. Sorry, we accidentally got engaged too much. We were just um <laughs> we just one accidentally get engaged. <laughs> so we we had a kid free weekend because the boys would be with their other parents every other weekend. And we'd gone into the city for the day and he was like, we'll go shopping, we'll have lunch and we'll stay there the night. And he couldn't work out why it was really hard to get accommodation on a like random Saturday night. And so we accidentally got engaged at River Fire. But, but how? <laughs> there, there, so there was no plan. We, we just say it's the day we got engaged because there was no plan. We were walking through the Brisbane Arcade and he just went, let's let's go look at an engagement ring. I'm like, why? We're not getting married. And he goes, well, we could. And so we just, we went in and we designed a ring that day. And that's how we say that we accidentally got engaged <laughs> at River Fire in 2018. <laughs> oh, it sounds like how my mom, how my dad proposed to my mom walking past a window shop and said, do you want to? And she said, yeah, righto. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what it was like. <laughs> um, so no, you are engaged now and moved in together? No, so we hadn't moved in together. We were engaged. We were still looking because we wanted to buy a house. Um, 
because he'd sold his home with his ex-wife and so to prevent um, having to pay a capital gains tax, he wanted to buy another property. So we were still looking for somewhere. We signed our contract December 2018, moved in together January 2019. And so the grants was I would go off birth control when we moved in together and we would give ourselves until my 30th birthday to fall pregnant because with all my fertility issues and miscarriages, we we didn't know how long it was going to take. And Even how long was that until your 30th birthday? Um, so my 30th was June 2020. So we'd given ourselves a year and a half to yeah. fall pregnant, basically. Um, but I was... I was excited for the first time in my life. I was actually planning a pregnancy. So I went out and I bought all the kits and I'd already been using like a tracker on my phone to prevent pregnancy and to like check my period and stuff. So I just flicked the switch that said that I'm actively trying and it was helping me monitor my ovulation. And we actually fell pregnant of April 2019. Oh, wow. So only a couple months. Yeah. And surprise, surprise, I tested positive on a home pregnancy test three days post ovulation. Wow. And the only, and so I I also hadn't been getting real periods between January, February, March. I was getting like spotting periods. Mm. They weren't proper periods. And so I just figured that well, what if I was already pregnant when I stopped taking the birth control? And I woke up. So the reason I tested was because I woke up so sick. Yeah. I was violently vomiting with my head in the bowl. And I'm like, oh, I'll take a pregnancy test. And when it came up positive instantly, I seriously thought that I was probably already in my second trimester. Wow. And I went. Yeah, because of the, like, your HCG levels usually being low. Yeah, and just my history. And I went to my GP and the first thing he did was order an ultrasound because he was like, you're either carrying twins or you're already in your second trimester. Mm. And I went for the ultrasound and there was an empty sack. So I was automatically freaking out. And they rebooked the ultrasound. They're like, look, it doesn't mean anything. Let's just we'll come back in a couple of weeks. And then I started spotting at about seven weeks and my ultrasound was booked for about seven and a half weeks. Um, so I was, I'd reserved myself to the fact that I was losing the baby when I started spotting. Um, but a couple of days after I started spotting, I went for the ultrasound and there she was, this tiny little speck. How exciting. It was very exciting, but I was still very nervous. We didn't tell anyone until after we had the 20-week morphology scan. Yeah, yuck. And Um, then how was that pregnancy with Kendall? Besides the fact that I was sick right up until 29 weeks, pretty good. As soon as we started planning for a pregnancy, I started seeing a chiropractor. Mm -hmm. And I continued seeing my chiropractor. Basically, it was... For the first trimester, it was once a month. The second trimester, I went fortnightly. And then in my third trimester, I went weekly or sometimes twice weekly. 
because I was determined I was having a VBAC, even though it was against medical advice. Yeah. What hospital were you choosing to go through the second time? So once again, I was naive and I didn't know that I had a right to choose going through the public health system. Mm-hmm. So I, my doctor sent off all my paperwork to Logan and with, uh, with all my history and everything, they had booked my first obstetrician appointment for around the 12-week mark, which I thought was really early considering I didn't get seen until I was about 28 weeks with Big K at the hospital. Yeah, yep, 12 weeks is very early. And I went in and I'm talking to them and giving them my history and everything like that. And they were like, all right, so we can actually go ahead and book your C-section now so that we have the date. And I looked at them and I went, what are you talking about? I'm having a VBAC. And the obstetrician said, I cannot allow you to birth your baby vaginally because if you do, you will die and so will your baby. What was the reasoning for that? Was that because of the uterine wall? Yeah. So, mind you, um, what I was talking about earlier about my uh, uterine scar, I wasn't aware of it at this point. So, I didn't get a debrief and get told that my uterine scar was an issue. I think you'll remember I said after I had Big K, they told me that if I wanted a feedback, that wouldn't be an issue as long as I waited 12 months to fall pregnant. Mm. So I was just like, what the hell? Like they're telling me I'm going to kill my baby. That's very triggering to say to any woman, but especially a woman who's had multiple miscarriages. Yeah. And that's when they told me that I had a uterine extension. And I was like, what the heck? So I left the appointment in like this massive haze. I was bawling my eyes out. My husband was like, what is going on? Like. He didn't understand what they were saying. Um, And so it took me a couple of days to gather myself and I called my friend, friend who was working as a midwife um, on the coast. I think by this time she was working at John Flynn. And I said to her, I was like, so I'm pregnant. No one knows not even my parents at this point. I said, but I need your help. And she was like, what's wrong? And I explained to her that I had gone for a hospital appointment at 12 weeks and they were demanding I book a C-section and that if I attempted to have a vaginal birth, I was going to kill my baby. And she's like, what the fuck? (laughs) And she said to me, she's like, the first thing you need to do is you need to go back to your GP and you need to request that you be put into the MGP program at Bow Desert because at the time, I don't know if it's changed, but Logan have an MGP program, but they only offer it to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't eligible for MGP at Logan. Uh, So she said, you need to go back to your doctor. You need to get transferred to Bow Desert she did say that I wouldn't be able to birth at Bow Desert, but I could be under the care of my midwife at Bow Desert who and my midwife could attend my birth at Logan. Yeah. So I did all that and I was calling Bow Desert every week waiting for an answer. <laughs> and they're like, you know, 
you're in the files, you know, don't worry. And luckily for me, the midwife that called me, she had a mother move out of catchment. So she couldn't birth at Bow Desert anymore. And that opened up a spot for me. And I got the call, I think I was about 26 weeks, I got the phone call to say that I was accepted into MGP at Bow Desert. So before all that happened, uh, my friend who had told me to apply for MGP and all that, she said, you need to request your birth records from Logan. So she helped me do all that. And I. this is the same friend who helped me write a birth plan the first time around. Yeah, yep. And I took my birth records to her. They were so big that they had to put them on a disc. And to summarize it, she explained my uterine scar because and what it meant. And funnily enough, the scar is actually more common, especially with women who progress to 10 centimeters and then have a C-section. But there aren't enough statistics on it because quite often women are scared into having repeat C-sections. So there's not actually enough women V-backing with this scar to have the statistics that you have with a classical or a T or an inverted T or a J incision. Mm. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, the letters that I just rattled are just the different scars on a woman's uterus, what they're called. Uh And so she explained it, but she was actually able to give me some closure about my son's birth. (laughs) So that's where she explained to me that it had nothing to do with the pushing for an hour or anything like that. It was the fact that uh, he he had compressed his plates uh, as far as they were going to go. So, you know, when the baby's coming out the birth canal, they compress the plates on their head to make it easier to come out. Mm. he had done it they were 100% like they were overlapped they weren't his his head wasn't getting any smaller and for clarity he he was born with a 36 and a half centimeter head and at his one week checkup it was 40 centimeters Mm. so he had quite a large head yeah um and she said the reason I could see him in the mirror was because he had tilted his head and when he's tilted his head to come out, his jaw got caught on my pelvic bone. So this is I'm the kind of person that needs all the information and this is what was not given to me. I was about to say it's extremely disappointing that that was given to you years later by your friend requesting information and not right then and there from your original medical providers sitting and unpacking that information with you. It's also something that I didn't know that I could request. Yeah, yeah. Every person has the right to request all of their medical records, and but they don't make it common knowledge. They don't tell you that you have the right to request this information, get this information, and you can go unpack it with a private provider. You don't Mm. even have to do it with the hospital. You can take your records and you can go see someone else. Mm. And just for like anyone listening, I actually, I was in the MGP on GC that they were very amazing. And after I gave birth, they had said, we will send you all of your medical records if you'd like to talk over it with anyone. And I was like, no, I don't need them. It's all good. You keep them. That That's amazing. And that's something that I wasn't offered. It's not something that I was offered with either of my births, to be honest. Mm. 
Yeah, really um, disappointing. It it is, and I feel that's where the Logan Hospital has let women down in the past. And you hear a lot of bad things about Logan, but you do hear some positive things. But I think it's because. They're just missing basic human decency with a lot of things. Mm. Like their bedside manner could use a bit of work from my experience anyway. So she'd gone through my paperwork with me and she'd been able to debrief me. And basically she said, what your brother said probably added to your trauma. But even though he was right, it wasn't that. My C-section was category two. So yes, eventually, if I didn't agree to the C-section, both my son and I would have died because there was no way he was going to come out of my vagina. They wouldn't have even been able to reposition him to make him come out. So she said, even though what he told you was true, and it's probably what you need to hear in the moment, it wasn't as terrifying as what I thought it was in that moment. Mm. Um, So, you know, even though I can have a little cry about it and now – it is easier for me to talk about now than what it was then, but I still cannot look at the photos from my son's birth without getting really triggered and really upset. Yeah. Um, so back to planning for the VBAC, that's when my friend said, look, there's no statistics on this type of scar, uh, so your best option is to research a J incision. Um so basically, a J incision is similar to a, an extension. Uh, they called mine a left angle extension. So it meant that it, I, and for women who don't know, I don't know if you've spoken about it previously on any of your other episodes, the C-section scar that you see on the outside isn't necessarily the incision that is on the inside. So your little smiley face incision, nine times out of 10, they do do that on the inside of the uterus, but then you've got the T incision or the inverted T incision, which you can just imagine is the way they're cutting the uterus to get baby out. Yeah. Um, so the J incision is similar to the extension in the way that it go, except it, it extends the scar, but it goes upwards. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, the left angle extension, or in some cases a right angle extension, it depends on what side the doctor is on. Um is basically how it's determined. And in most cases, it is actually a tear, not a clean cut. And in my case, um, they did cut it with a little bit of tearing, which is when they cut it to get him out, but then it tore down to my uterine artery on my left-hand side. Mm. So this so is all in. trying to figure out how to give birth again with like no statistics and a medical team that are pushing back on you yeah I remember one day I had to attend an obstetrician appointment at Logan without my MGP midwife because it clashed with some of her other appointments with other women that she couldn't change and at one point they called um, two other doctors into the room to basically bully me into um, signing off on a c-section at 37 weeks, mind you, they wanted to take my daughter at 37 weeks. To me, that's not medically necessary. Mm. They let they let me go to almost 42 weeks to the day previously. Why are you trying to take my daughter three weeks early? Yeah. Um, but I cannot say enough about the MGP program at the Bow Desert Hospital. They were fantastic. I, When I got transferred there, I had to have a meeting with the obstetrician. 
And the first thing she said, she's like, oh, so you're transferring from Logan. Are you having a C-section? I said, no, I'm having a VBAC. And she looked at me and she said, who's your midwife? And I told her the name of my midwife and she went, you're in great hands. I think you're an excellent candidate for a VBAC regardless of your scar. She said, it's unfortunate that we can't do it here. Mm. And I I got to meet some of the other midwives. Um, my midwife's backup midwife was also a VBAC mum who had, I believe she told me a story that she – she was actually trying for a H-back. And for anyone who doesn't know what a H-back is, that's a home birth after cesarean. So now let's move on to your birth. Okay. Um, so was there any more pushback from the, like, hospital? Like, where, where were you at now? Were you, did they give in or were they still pushing for a C-section? Okay. So Logan pushed for a C-section right up until Kendall fell out on the bed. Oh. <laughs> um, okay, well, take us to the first signs of labor with Kendall. Well, I, I've got a story about how they – I'll tell you a quick story about the day that I had the three obstetricians in the room demanding that I book for a 37-week C-section. And I said, no, at 42 weeks on the day you can induce me, and if that induction fails, then you can perform a C-section. The other stat that I figured out while I was planning for my VBAC was you have a 1% to 2% chance of uterine rupture with any with pretty much any VBAC, right? But they only tell you that you have a – they don't reword it to say that you have a 98 to 99% chance of a successful VBAC. No, they say you have an increased chance of – yeah, and they also don't tell you that you have an increased um, chance of maternal mortality with every subsequent C-section. They don't um, explain that the risks go up with every subsequent C-section. So in most cases, unless, of course, you have an actual medical reason to have a C-section, a VBAC is a safer option. Um, so they said, well, we really want to book you for a growth scan. All right, fine, book me for a growth scan. So they booked that in for 37 weeks, which was two weeks later. And my one concern was that Kendall was going to have a big head. Although my husband's two sons were small babies, I was very convinced she was going to be a small baby. She felt small. It was different to my son where I felt he was large. I felt she was small. And on the growth scan, they had said that she was weighing in at about 3.3 kilo. Mm. And I went, that's fine. My son was four kilo. Like if you told me I was having a five kilo baby, maybe I'd consider it. Mm. And I said, but I want to know how big her head is. And they said, why? And I said, because my son's head got stuck and I want to know if her head's going to come out or not. And they said, well, currently it's measuring about 32 and a half centimeters. I was like, sweet. She's just going <laughs> to fall out. And I remember I told my <laughs> midwife that and she's like, you know, it doesn't really happen that way. And I'm like, I know, but I'm manifesting it. Like I'm going to go into labor and it is going to happen fast and she's going to fall out of me. And <laughs> I laugh because a couple of weeks before I had her, I had a dream and I was having my best friend at the time. I was having, I had asked my best friend to be there as a second support person just in case things went wrong and it did end up in a C-section. Um, 
just so I didn't have some of the same triggering experiences that I'd had, like being left alone and not knowing what happened to my baby and just someone also, because she's a very strong will person, I knew that she could voice my wants and my desires in moments where I wasn't able to do that. And I, I had basically had a dream that I was standing over the hospital bed. My husband was holding my hands and my daughter came out and almost hit the floor, but my best friend caught her. So that that's my dream, all right? And it comes it comes important um, <laughs> later on. So I was due on the 23rd of January. And oh, that's my I, birthday. Is it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> wow. Could you imagine if she actually came on that day? Yeah, exactly. And called it a candle. <laughs> yeah. Um, which that was her name from the second we found out we were pregnant. Like when we were planning pregnancy, that was her name. Like we, mm-hmm. we had a girl's name picked out, boy's name we were really undecided on, but from the moment we planned, that was her name. So you should feel special because I also said that if I if if we named her Kendall, it had to be spelt the same way as you, not like yeah. the Kardashians. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I woke up that morning and I lost my plug and I messaged my midwife and my midwife was actually meant to be off for the weekend, but working for the Australia Day public holiday and everything. So she thought I was going to go into labor. So she switched her weekend. And I had like mild contractions coming very inconsistently. That night they were probably coming every three minutes, lasting 40 seconds, but then they fizzled. Nothing happened. So we just went about our life for the next few days. And the morning of the 26th, I said to my husband, I said, I can't keep having these intermittent contractions. We're having sex and we're getting this baby out. Mm. And that was about 9.30 in the morning. And pretty much soon after, my contractions really ramped up. And I, I had tried like pumping and sitting on the birthing ball and doing all those tricks prior to try and help. and Trust me, everyone, sex actually works as uncomfortable as it is. It works. (laughs) So then it was Australia Day and we're like, well, I don't think she's coming because my contractions didn't stay consistent. So So this is like how long after you've had sex? (laughs) um, 30, 10, 12.30, we decided to take the kids to my parents for a swim. It was Australia Day. My um, siblings were there with my nieces and nephews and I got there and my sister and my sister-in-law were just looking at me and they're like, you're having contractions, aren't you? I said, yeah, but just don't tell mum because she'll freak out. Mm. Um, and then it was about 3.30 and my sister-in-law looked at me and said, you're not okay. And she goes, N-. and I just looked at her and I said, you need to go downstairs and you need to quietly get Trent out of the pool and tell him that we're going home now and we're leaving the kids behind. Um. So she did that and she quickly messaged my best friend to let her know that, you know, labor was really happening this time. And so she left her straight A celebrations and raced to my house. That was about 4.30 when we got home and I was just in the shower. I told my husband, I'd already had the kids' bags packed in case it happened while we had them all. And I had said to him, 
Like, I'm just going to be in the shower. Like, this is going to take a long time. You quickly run the bags back to the kids at my mum's. And while he was, I said, leave the front door open so that my friend could come in. And while he was gone, she got here and she's like, where is he? And I'm like, oh, he's going to take the bags back to the kids. I stupidly should have taken them when we went in the first place, but I didn't. I called my midwife and it diverted to the backup midwife. And I said, oh, look, contractions are coming. At this point, they were coming every, still every three minutes, lasting about 30 seconds, I think. And I'd moved from the shower to the bath and she's like, well, do you want me to come to your house and I'll just check you to make sure that you are in labor? I said, yeah, please do that because I had a real fear about going to the hospital too early and having too many interventions like I did last time. She got here soon after and I was in the bath and she said to me, she's like, look, it sounds like you're really in labor. She's like, but you need to make a decision because I can't legally help you give birth at home. (laughs) Mm. And I was like, all right, let's get out. You can check me and we'll see see how far we've got, right? So we lay towels down on the bed and she checks me and I'm one centimeter, but 100% effaced. Yeah. So she's like, I'm not doing a sweep because I could accidentally break your waters and I don't want to do that. Mike, all right, it's one centimeter. This is not happening anytime soon. Um, and she's like, all right, well, I'll call back in an hour and we'll see where you are from that there. And then just before she left, she got a phone call from one of her other mums who was also planning a VBAC, but she had decided now that she was in labor, she didn't want a VBAC. She wanted a C-section. So they were headed to Boat Desert for that mum to have her C-section. And I was like, it's fine. The midwife said, by the time the C-section's done, I'll be able to come back here and I'll be able to check you again. And then we can make a decision about what we're doing. Well, I'd been listening to a few VBAC podcasts throughout my pregnancy and a few tricks that I learned was sitting on the toilet backwards to help your labor progress. So when the water in the bath became too uncomfortable and the shower wasn't working, I decided that I was going to sit on the toilet backwards. And my contractions were then coming every minute and a half to two minutes. And my... My friend looked at me and she's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call the midwife. And she called the midwife. The midwife said, I can hear her. You need to call an ambulance. The baby's coming. Uh, mind you, I'm still stuck in my head that I'm only one centimeter. Like there's, there's no way this is happening. And I remember my friend's like, you need to get up now. We need to dress you. Like we need to go. I said, you're not calling an ambulance and if you're not going to support me, you can fuck off out of my house because I don't want you here. And she, she's looked at me and she's like, Tony, I really think you need to go to the hospital. And then within the few moments of getting out of the boys' bathroom, which is where I was at one end of the house, walking to the other house, end of the house, I went, all right, I give in. I need drugs. I can't do this anymore. I need drugs. Let's go to the hospital. I said, but don't call an ambulance. We're going to drive. And it's a 40-minute drive from my house to Logan Hospital. And while we're in the car, my contractions completely stopped. Oh, no. So I said to my husband, let's go home. And he's like, nope, we're in the car, we're going. I'm like, nah, let's go home. And we were arguing and he's like, no, we're going to the hospital. And luckily that 
he didn't turn around because when we got to the hospital, it was probably about 7.30 and he pulls up in the emergency, like underneath car park. I was like, we've got time. There's no contractions. We'll just park. We'll walk up. You'll be fine. The second he parked the car and I got out, my contractions were coming every minute. Like I did not have any time. I was basically crawling in to the emergency department on all fours because my contractions were coming so close together and they just looked at me and they're like, is the baby coming? I'm like, yeah. And they called for a wheelchair, but someone wasn't like they were waiting and an orderly that had come in that was meant to take a different patient somewhere else. He was like, I'll just take her because they <laughs> obviously didn't want me birthing in emergency. And I just remember I'm sitting in the wheelchair, but I had to stand for every contraction. Mm. Like I, I couldn't stay seated. And my friend, mind you, I'm five foot three. My best friend's like six foot. And I just remember every contraction, I'd have to have her stand in front of me so that I could wrap my hands around her neck because I was, I needed to be weightless. Plus my legs were like jelly. I couldn't hold myself up. And the orderly, in the middle of one contraction, the orderly noticed a ED nurse coming back from break. And he was like, you need to run with me because we need to run now because like, this baby's coming. And when we got to birthing, they were all calm. And I was just like, I'm a V-back. I'm a V-back. Like, <laughs> I have to, I have to tell them. And they, the midwife, I should say, my MGP midwife had called them to tell them that I was coming, but they were still unprepared. And they got there and the one of the midwives said, we need to check you. We need to know how far along you are. And sh then she turned to another midwife and said, she sounds like she's in transition, but I really don't think she is. And like, she was like checking my back. So I think she was checking for like that pink line that you get. Yeah. Yep. Which I obviously didn't have it. They made me get on my back to do the cervical exam, which was so painful. And I just remember she was like mid-exam and I was like, I can't stay like this and a contraction was coming. And while her fingers were still inside me, I flipped back over onto my knees. Um, and she's like, oh, well, she's eight centimetres. <laughs> and I, they're like, well, what was working for you at home? And I said, oh, you know, sitting backwards on the toilet. And they're like, well, if you want to, you can go do that. And I think I did all the research in the world, but I was still not like prepared for like the bloody show, right? Especially with what happened with Big K. When, so when I've gone to the toilet and before I could even sit on the toilet, I pulled my pants down and my pad was like soaked in blood. So I was freaking out because mind you, just a few hours earlier, I was only one centimeter. Mm. So in my head, it was happening again. And that's when they're like, come on, we need to get you on the bed. We need to check you. And a midwife said, to the other midwife, she sounds like she's in transition, but she doesn't think she is. And that's when I said to you before how she was um, checking for the pink line, but I obviously didn't have it. So that was really triggering for me because I'm like bleeding, big K, three centimeters bleeding. They're going, I think she's in transition, but she's not. Like it was very, it was all very triggering. It was all happening in my mind at that point. And then they forced me onto my back to do the cervical check. They said they could only check me if I was on my back. You don't tell a, a 
laboring woman what position she needs to be in you mm-hmm. need to you need to figure it out right um but I just I didn't have it in me to argue and I was on my back and while the midwife's fingers were still inside me I was like I can't stay like this and I flipped my entire body over back onto my knees with my head again like against the back of the bed leaning over and she was like oh well she's eight centimeters and then the other midwife had finally brought up my file and she's like Tony, you need to stop. You need to stop. It's written here on your file. If you show up, we have to take you for an emergency C-section straight away. And I froze. I looked at my friend and she just looked at her and said, that's not fucking happening. This baby is coming and she is not having a C-section. And it seems like a lot happened. And mind you, this is all happening within probably an hour. We got to the hospital about 7.30. At, by the time this happened, it was 8 p.m. And I only remember it because they wrote the time that my waters broke on the whiteboard in the room. Mm. And then I, they had a midwife trying to place um, the drip in my hand and she kept missing my veins and blood was just squirting out everywhere. And I'm just like, can you just stop? Like, just stop. I'm fine. Just stop. And by this point, they'd given me the gas, but I wasn't inhaling it. I was just using the mouthpiece to bite down on. And I dropped it and my husband had picked it up and moved it away and I went looking for it and I ended up biting his hand. That's a little funny. Uh, but he said all the right things during labor, like reminding me that I was strong and I could do this and he loved me and I was doing a great job. Like he was so supportive while my best friend was the one to yell at the midwives and tell them when they were doing things wrong. How did did they sort of what did they do after you you said no this is happening vaginally did like were they like okay or were they like oh we need to go speak to other people or did they uh, it? they did call an obstetrician to the room but the obstetrician didn't make it there on time oh right okay sorry go on yeah so so they did call people up to the room um and. The thing is, is that like, you know, the fetal ejection process, Yeah, she, I, I could feel her dropping, but then at the same time after a contract, like I wasn't pushing, I was just letting her do her own thing. And then there was like a big contraction where I felt her drop really far, but then she went back up mm. and panic setting because I was like what the fuck was that and for me it made me paranoid thinking that she was going to be that she was getting stuck like my son did so on my next contraction I just pushed I was like she has to come out and I said out loud you're not getting fucking stuck you've got to come out you little fucking bitch (laughs) (laughs) and she there was no ring of fire no nothing her entire head shoulders body came out with that one push and she fell out onto the bed. (laughs) Holy, that's crazy. And what was everyone in the room like, what? Yeah, pretty much by the time the obstetrician got up there and peds because they'd called peds because there was meconium in my waters, she was already there, already breathing, already on the boob. Oh, really? That's amazing. Um, How were you feeling after that? I was just crying and I was like, oh, my God, I did it. 
I did it. Like I did what so many medical professionals told me that I could not do. Was there a bit of like almost like, ha, huh, told you so? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. There really was. Absolutely. I actually made a bit of a public uh, post shaming Queensland Health about the treatment and the fact that I birthed my baby vaginally after eight medical professionals told me that I couldn't do it. Mm. And what did the um, obstetrician say to you when they came into the room? Um, They're like, oh, well, this is done. And that was it. They um, had the obstetrician stitch me up because I had a second degree tear along. So I didn't tear downwards for my perineum. So like, you know how normally you tear, I tore along the side of my vaginal wall. Yeah. Um, To the point I can actually see the scar um, (laughs) because it like tore all the way outwards as well. Well, it happened quite fast. Yeah. And I was just determined, like I became paranoid that she was going to get stuck. So Mm. I just, I guess it was just like mama warrior. I had to get her out then and there because I was scared and I just used every ounce of my strength to help her come out on my next contraction. And even my midwife was actually shocked when she heard my birth story. She was like, I can't believe that the midwives were saying what they were saying and she was just amazed that I pushed her out in one push. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man, that's amazing. And then so she was on the boobs, so you obviously breastfed her as well. Yeah, I successfully breastfed her until she was 13 months. Yeah, so definitely a, like a different a different sort of journey with breastfeeding with her. It was. She she had a lazy latch, but because once again I had an oversupply and a fast letdown, she was still getting enough from the breast and the lazy latch didn't really affect me because she'd just suck enough for the letdown to happen and then she'd feed that way. But I also had enough milk stored in my freezer that she was still getting breast milk up until I think a month or two before her second birthday. Mm. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, but it definitely helped that I didn't have to go back to work uh, because obviously I was in a different relationship, a different financial circumstance. Plus COVID happened and we went into lockdown when she was six weeks old. So we made the decision that I wouldn't go back to work because at that point no one knew what was happening. We thought it was safer that I stayed at home with her. Yeah, yep. And how like how are you feeling compared to obviously your first birth you're pretty traumatized by it you know you're mm-hmm. not feeling that great after it until and then after Kendall's birth how we do you feel like it was a bit of a smoother transition into like postpartum absolutely uh her birth was very healing despite the few triggering moments her birth was very healing and very empowering Um, I had been told that I had to wait 24 hours before leaving the hospital uh, because there was was meconium in her water, Um, even though my plan was a six-hour turnaround. Like, that was my plan. I didn't want to be there, especially because, like, the hospital lights are very triggering for me with Big K's birth. It still triggers me to this day, even if I'm at the hospital for something else. Mm. And I was, like, adamant that I was leaving and... 
they still hadn't sent around the pediatrician to check her over. And I said, I don't care when this pediatrician comes, but they are coming today. This was the next day. Um, I said, but I am leaving the hospital today. And they made me um, sign paperwork because I discharged against medical advice because I didn't want to stay there. I just didn't feel supported. Um, the afterbirth pains, they're like, well, you should know what this feels like. I'm like, yes, this is my second baby, but I did not have afterbirth pains like this when I had my son because I was drugged up to the eyeballs because I had a C-section. Mm-hmm. So I didn't feel any pain. And then they tried saying that I had to stay because they were monitoring um, for my blood loss because I V-backed against medical advice and they were just giving me a bunch of word salad. And I said, look, I have an MGP midwife. If there's any issues, I'll call her. And at that point, they finally got the pediatrician to come see us at about 11.30 that night. And then we made a runner to come home, which allowed me to take Big K to his first day of school. Yeah. Um, Oh. So it was his first day of school like the next day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was another reason why I didn't want to stay at the hospital. I was like, I can't not be there for his first day of school. When I am medically fit, I feel fine. My daughter is fine. And I have a midwife that's going to be coming to my home every week anyway to check on me. Mm. And I can't remember what I was going to say. (laughs) That's all right. Well, good on you for speaking up and it is really disappointing that you had to fight so much of your way through both of your journeys. It is disappointing to hear that, you know, you had to fight so hard, but good on you for actually speaking up. It can be really hard for women to, you know, go against, if you've got like a a medical care provider saying that you're going to kill your baby, like imagine how scary that is. Well, you you don't even have to imagine you heard it. Like like for most women, that's a really scary thing to hear. And good on you for trusting your intuition and going with your gut and, you know, fighting for what you you wanted and what was right for your family. Yeah, thanks. One of the reasons I felt so supported with um, going through Bow Desert was they knew that I was educated. I'd done my research, whereas I, Logan, weren't interested in hearing that I had done my research. They, and I get it, they've been to med school, you know, they should know best but they don't know what was best for me they even wrote on my discharge paperwork when that arrived a week later not suitable for any future v-backs and my midwife laughed and she said once a v-back always a v-back yeah (laughs) absolutely is there any more plans for any kids in the future no we're we're pretty done if it happens surprisingly then it happens but we're pretty much done yeah so I've got some questions to ask you. I don't know uh-huh. if you remember what were what were your overall costs to birth your baby if you had any. Um, with Big K, I'd have no idea. Uh, but Miss K, it was probably just really the Cairo because I went through the public health system. Yeah, um, which was I think it cost me about sixty five dollars a session. Yeah, yeah, but not the overall cost, but. Yeah, yeah I, uh, I saw a car every week with my pregnancy too. Hmm. Um, and if you could give one piece of advice to a mum who is about to embark on this journey, what would it be? Research every possible outcome and have a plan for every possible outcome. I agree. 
So even when I was planning for my VBAC, my VBAC plan was my number one, but I did have a C-section plan in case my VBAC went awry. Mm. I absolutely agree that you should plan for all scenarios and not just like medically, but planning, putting a plan into place at home as well. I know a lot of people go in um, not expecting that sort of thing to happen, but, you know, even in, in it, but it, sometimes it does. And having even just like a support system at home, like, okay, what's yeah. it going to look like if I have a C-section? How am I going to get support? Who's going to drive me? Who's going to do this? Like, Yeah, because yeah. you can't drive for six weeks. Exactly. And so we, I had all that in place when planning for my VBAC. Like my the plan was my husband was going to take a week off and then go back to work. But if I had a C-section, I told him he had to at least have a month off. Yeah. Yeah, and exactly. So we we had all that plan in place and I was unprepared with that with Big K. I, as I said earlier, I thought I was going to drive myself to my induction, have a baby and drive home. Mm. That's not the case at all. Yeah, exactly. You definitely have to like have an idea of, you know, if the first plan doesn't work out, what's happening with the second plan for sure. I agree. Yeah. Um, and what is your favorite product or purchase? Uh, a hucker and a double electric breast pump because with Big K, I had a manual pump, like a single manual pump, and oh, I was not doing that again. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I didn't go out and buy like a $300 double electric breast pump. I literally bought one for $5 off eBay and it was like a Spectra knockoff and it was amazing. Really? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I did. I bought the four hundred dollar pump, and I don't think it was it was really worth it. So <laughs> there you go. Oh, it it was amazing. It had like a clip, so I could put my um, pumping bra on, which I also bought off eBay. Put the pump on, and I could clip it to like my pants, and I could get up and do housework, and it would just pump away while I needed to pump. Like it was that those two purchases, the Hucker and the double electric breast pump, definitely by far amazing. Well, Tony, that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your journey with us. It was amazing to hear and, and well done to you. Thank you for having me. And Thanks so much, Tony, for coming on and sharing your story. It's been a long time coming, so I'm so glad that you finally come on and shared it with all of us. It's really unfortunate to hear that Tony had to fight so hard in one of the most vulnerable times of her life to get what she wanted with her medical providers. So I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. Um, and for the listeners, I hope by hearing these conversation, it serves you, equips you, helps you with the skills that you need if you need to navigate through that situation ever. Hopefully you don't, but thanks so much, Tony, for sharing, um, you know, what you did and what you said to help get you through that and trusting your intuition. Absolute gun. If you are preparing for birth and postpartum, jump over to the Made Into Mother website. Um, I have spent a year and a half putting together the most perfect packages for women, all of the stuff that I used or I didn't use and needed. So I've got the birth preparation pack and the postpartum recovery pack. 
and all of my podcast listeners get a special discount code so if you head over there and type in the discount code pod 10 pod 10 the number 10 you will get a 10% off discount code storewide. Alrighty, we will wrap it up there. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you guys next time on the show. The information and opinions presented in this podcast are for educational and entertainment purposes only. While I may discuss pregnancy, birth and postpartum topics, I'm not a medical professional and the information provided should not be construed as medical advice. I strongly encourage my listeners to consult with their own healthcare provider before making any changes in your pregnancy and birth journey based on the information you hear on this podcast or elsewhere. Remember, the information provided in this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any health concerns or questions, please seek the guidance of a licensed medical professional. Thanks for listening. Remember, Mama, you're everything that your baby needs and you're doing an amazing job.